We'll be in James chapter 5 today. We love scriptures that tell us things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's a great scripture. That's one that we can cling to. And, and it's not only for some of us, it's for all of us. All of us can claim that. All of us can say, I can do all things through Christ. Now, see, it isn't I am so great that I can do all things. It's Christ, through Christ who gives me strength. So it's, we have to give credit where credit's due. It's not to us. It's to the fact that the Holy Spirit is working through us. But we're less than thrilled with scriptures that convict us that say things like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He said, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We don't like verses like that. What, I have to be nice to people I don't like or people that are being rude to me or people that are hating on me? I have to be nice to them? Yes. And, and that's the struggle that we deal with in Scripture because God wants us to represent him his way, not our way. We don't get to decide how we're going to represent God. Well, yes, we actually do. We go out there and represent him any old way we want to. But the point is, he's telling us how we should represent him. If you send a secretary of state out to another country to go speak to another ambassador or someone from another country, you would expect them to represent the country the way that the president wants the country to be rep represented the way that we want to, as a nation, want to be represented. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen. But when it comes to the Lord, he has one way of doing things with love. Amen. He wants to show love to everyone, even to those who don't deserve it. Now, I know that most of us here deserve it, right? So it's okay. It's easy for us to accept love. But the reality is we don't deserve his love. But he gave it to us anyway to the point where he sent his only begotten son to the cross to die for us so that we can receive the Holy Spirit so that we can be set free of our sin. Isn't that awesome? That's what God has done. So even though we have these great scriptures that encourage us and tell us things like we can do all things, we also have the scriptures that tell us, hey, love your enemies. Love your enemies just like I love you because you were once my enemy. And here I died for you while we were still enemies. I died for you. Isn't that awesome? that he did that. So it's hard to hear those scriptures, but James is now going to continue to tell us things that we may find uncomfortable as we read his scriptures because he is holding the church accountable to the things that we should be doing as a church. 
but it's things that we really need to hear. Today's message is titled, What Not to Do. We continue our study through the book of James with chapter 5, verse 1, where James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. So um, we pause there. In chapter 2, James addressed the um, wealthy in that the church was showing favoritism to the wealthy. And he was telling them, no, the church shouldn't be showing favoritism to anyone the wealthy or the poor or to anyone. Everyone is equal in the sight of God, so we shouldn't be showing favoritism. But now he's going to be addressing the rich directly. And the reason he's addressing them directly is because many of the rich were relying more on their riches than they were on God for their provisions. Isn't that something that we can get caught up in? That's something that we can start trusting in our wealth or start struggling in our wealth or lack of it when we have the God of all creation who doesn't have an economic downturn and he can provide for everything And whether we're rich or poor, we can trust him to be the provider of everything that we need. And and so here, James is calling out the rich in this case, but we can apply this to everyone in that we shouldn't trust in what we have or don't have to get us through financial struggles. We should trust in God. And if we're in a financial struggle, is it because we put ourselves there? Quite often, we put ourselves in debt because we think we need this and we want to have this and we put things on credit and put ourselves in debt and then we end up struggling to get out of debt or we have a a struggle in our lives financially, something, the air conditioning unit goes out, something, anything, and now we can't afford it because we've spent money on everything else. You know, and here, James is really talking to the rich. He wants to talk to them about where they're investing their wealth. Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 15 that the rich would have a hard time entering the kingdom of God because, not because of their wealth. It it isn't because they were going to be carrying all their riches into eternity. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the attitude of their heart. And that's why they would have a problem getting in to heaven. But There were wealthy people following Jesus. Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. He was very wealthy. Matthew was also a tax collector. He had some wealth stored up. Barnabas 
we're told in Acts that he sold his land and then brought the money to the church, that it can be provided to the church. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was a very wealthy man. He gave up his tomb that was hewn out of stone so that Jesus can be laying in there. Someone that has a tomb hewn out of stone in a garden and everything, that's someone that has a lot of wealth. And just all of the stuff, the spices and everything he, he brought to prepare Jesus' body demonstrated the amount of wealth that he had. So these guys were wealthy, but they must have realized that their wealth wasn't as important as their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it was more important to follow after Christ. It was more important to do with their wealth, what God would want them to do with their wealth, not what they thought that they should be doing. So I'm not saying that you should donate all of your money and give it all to the church and let the church... Well, you know, this isn't... I'm not looking to form a, a socialist commune here and everybody just give it and we'll provide you with what you need. That didn't work in the early church and it wouldn't work today. That's not how things work. But uh, I believe that we're supposed to be good stewards with God's money. What God blesses us with, we also in turn should take it and use it for his purposes. And when we do, he continues to bless. He continues to provide for all of our needs, not just for our needs, above and beyond our needs. And I believe that that's where we can put our faith to test by saying, you know, I'm, I trust God to provide. J.C. Penney did this. J.C. Penney started by giving 10% of everything he had. And then he bumped it up to 20%. And then he bumped it up to 30%. By the time J.C. Penney died, he was giving 90% to the church. And he was only keeping 10% for himself. So... You know, we can, you know, God, the only time that God said, test me in this, is in giving. That's the only place that God has ever said, test me in this. Test me. If you give, that I won't give back, that I won't bless. Now, I'm not talking about finances here. I, I just want you to be sure that I'm not talking about giving money and you're going to get back. There are churches out there that teach that. You know, give this much and you're going to get back, you know, tenfold. And look, the Bible teaches that. Yes, you're going to get back tenfold, but who said it was money? You know? And everything that you give, you're storing up treasure in heaven. And we're going to be in heaven a lot longer than we're going to be here on earth. So I want to store up what I can up there, not here, because it's all going to burn. You've heard that before, haven't you? See, it's not going to get caught up in a flood. It's going to get caught up in fire. And it's all going to toast. So we don't have to be focused on what's here. See, in those days, the ones that had the money, they were the landowners. They had animals. They had cattle and so on and so forth. In those days, they were the 1%. And everyone else kind of was. And the middle class was all big combined into one big group of people. They were the ones that didn't have what those that had the riches had. So, you know, they were the one percenters. 
those that lived up above. But we consider what the middle class has here in the United States. We don't consider what we have compared to the world. We always consider what we have compared to our neighbors. It just depends on where you live. If you live in Detroit, you have different neighbors than in Fountain Hills. You know, so you can move from one place to another and have more than what your neighbor has. But even the, the middle class here in the United States would be considered the 1% compared to most of the rest of the world because they live with relatively nothing compared to what we have. It's kind of like the example of Bill Gates. I mean, this guy, he has so much money that if he dropped a $100 bill, it would cost him more to pick it up than it would be just to keep moving on because he earns more than $100 a second. A second. In a week, he earns $80 million in a week. So when he invested $80 million on the west side of town to build a smart city, he bought all this land over there and he's going to build a city over there, and he invested $80 million for us saying, wow, $80 million, that was, he earned that while he was on vacation for a week. Okay, and, and so we can't compare, but now I'm not criticizing Bill Gates. You know, If he has the money, got, I wish he came to our church and tithed. You know, that would, that would be a benefit, you know. But, you know, I would just like to see that we're not storing up stuff here. So now they say he's worth $90 billion. What is he doing? Now, I'm not saying he's not doing anything because he is doing things. And if you know what Bill Gates is doing, he's actually doing a lot of good with that money. So I'm not criticizing him, but we're not like that. We're not that rich, but to some of the people that live in some of these third world and fourth world countries, they look at us and they see us as Bill Gates. The middle class in the United States lives way above anything they can ever aspire to. But we take it for granted. And, you know, we have stuff in our attics and in our closets and in our garages and, and stuff like that, that we may not even know that's there. It's just there. It's extra. It's an abundance of stuff. You know, it's like, gee, where did this dress come from in my closet? Oh, honey, I can tell you. Coles. The tag is still on it. Right there, it says Coles. And, and I, so I know where it came. You see, we have so much that there are things that we may not even... I was in my garage the other day, and I was going through my... Um, my toolbox, and there was a tool in there that I have no idea what it's there for. I have no idea what it's used for. I have, it's there in my toolbox. I'm like, what is this? What is it? It could be worth a lot of money. It's just sitting there in my toolbox. And you know what it's doing? It's corroding. It's corroding. You see, and that's what James is talking about. Our Riches are corroding. They're deteriorating. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's the fact that no matter, you can have a brand new car, 
you know, at, you know, right off the line and put it in your garage and cover it and leave it there for 10 years, when you pull the cover off, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to look very good. It may not even start. The seals have dried up. The t- air is out of the tire. Everything, it would be in a, in a state of decay. And you didn't do anything. You just put it there. It was brand new when you put it there. That's everything is in a state of decay. And that's what James is talking about. It's all corroded. And that is the witness against us. The fact that we have stuff that's just corroding and decaying. Stuff that someone else may be able to use. But we're just hanging on to it because we need it. You know, it's in our gro- I need seven nine sixteen sockets. I've got them just in case we ever break into some, you know, we have something that has a lot of nine sixteenths. I've got them. You know, I don't even know where I got some of this stuff from, but it's there just in case. And, you know, when we consider everything we have, we're blessed. What do we do with the blessings? Instead of using those things for the kingdom of God, we tend to store them. I'm so busy, I don't have time to clean up my toolbox. I don't have time to get rid of the stuff that I really don't need. You know, and you know that's uh, 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 you know something that I should consider. You know, and I did consider as I was writing this. <laughs> I kept taking breaks, going out to the garage. All right, what else can I get rid of? You know, then I just, I got rid of a bunch of Cheryl's clothes. So (laughs) James makes this personal for us in verse three. He says, you have heaped up treasure for yourself in the last days. That's what James says. In the last days. It's been 2,000 years since he wrote that. What's he talking about in the last days? Well, we can take that personally. Because we know we're in the last days. We can see it by the events that are taking place throughout the world. We can see everything that the Bible says that's going to happen in the last days is happening now. It didn't happen when James was alive. It didn't happen 200 years ago, 500 years ago, even 1,000 years ago. That's not when it was happening. Now it's happening. And now we can say, oh, These are the last days. Now, when is the last day? No one knows when the last day is, but everyone knows when the season is because that's what the Word of God says. You don't know the last day, but you know the season. And we can see that we're living in that season. So I believe the Lord is going to return soon. And if all of our riches, all of our wealth, everything stored up is just going to be dissolved and disintegrated, what's the point? I'm not preaching this today to try to fill the coffers of the church. That's not my point. I'm not doing this to put a guilt trip on everyone, and you all know that I don't talk about money unless we get to it in the Bible. And then when we get to it, as we're going through the text, I discuss it. If you want to give, please do. I encourage you, please give, because That's what keeps this church going. No one gets paid here. We're all volunteers, every one of us. But the point is, is that it costs money to have a church run, to operate, to bless everyone with 
the things that we're able to bless them with, this comfortable facility, the air conditioning, so on and so forth. That's why we ask for donations. I don't ask. We just put a box out. If you want to donate, it's up to you. It's between you and God what you do with that money. And we don't discuss that very often at all. But I want you to give because God tells you to give, not because Pastor Rick told you to give. It's all about what God puts on your heart, not about coercion or anything else. I don't believe in that. And I believe that if you're uncomfortable with giving, then don't give. That's between you and God. You know, and I'm not the one, I'm not going to, when, when you're saying, hey, I'm having a struggle in my life, the first question out of my mouth is, how much are you tithing? You know, that's, that has nothing to do with it. There are some places that that's what the first question you'll hear. My brother told me that when he w- went to his pastor and he was struggling and, the, and he went and asked the pastor and the pastor said, are you tithing? And my brother was like, what does that have to do with anything? You know? But that's the attitude of many places. I refer to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, 15, he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, for this night your soul will be required of you. Then those, uh, then Whose will, um, whose will those things be that you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We've been blessed by God, and a lot of times we build bigger storage facilities to hold on to those things, to store them. And, you know, if we're using them, that's different. But... He had enough in the first place. He had enough to store everything that he needed in the first place. But he was going to tear them down and build bigger ones so that he could store even more. He didn't need more. He could have used the excess to bless others because God had blessed him. And he still would have had an abundance of what he needed. And that's really the attitude that should be in our hearts. What is the extra that I don't need? What do I have that's an abundance that I really don't need and that I can share with someone else? I'm not saying give it all away, but what I'm saying is having that attitude in our hearts, being willing to give whatever is needed somewhere else, God will open up opportunities for us to bless others. And then when we do, he'll bless us for being faithful to him. That's what this whole text is about. The riches were being held onto by the wealthy, and there were people out there that were starving, that needed help, and they were struggling. 
John now has some words for those who cheat others. In verse 4, he said, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fatted, fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. And you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. This isn't all wealthy people that um, this is referring to. But there are many wealthy that are stingy. That's how they got wealthy, by being stingy. And they continue to be stingy. One of the things that I make a point to do is that when we go out to restaurants and stuff like that and people serve us, we like to make sure that we bless them with a good tip. Because first of all, we're representing Jesus Christ. So as we represent Jesus Christ, we want them to feel comfortable with um, serving us, but also to learn about Jesus Christ through how we treat them by how we interact with them. They're not beneath us because we're sitting down to have a meal and they're serving us. Jesus came as a servant and he washed the feet of the apostles. So we should in turn minister to them. We don't have to serve them as they come to the table, but we should minister to them. We should treat them the same way that Jesus treats us, with respect and appreciation for the job that they're doing. And then at the end of the meal, we should tip them accordingly. And if we don't, I used to go out with a group of friends back in California years ago when I lived in, uh, in Long Beach, and we would all go out together to restaurants, and everyone would pitch in at the end. Oh, how much is the bill this much? All right, everybody put in, you know, how much you ate, and so on and so forth. And, and inevitably, at the end of the meal, everybody would start running away, and I would be hanging out there looking, and there'd be like $3 as a tip, you know, to a $60 bill. And I would end up leaving the tip. What I ended up not doing was eating with them anymore. Okay, you go out and be the bad witness, you know, and I will go and eat and I will bless someone with the tip because I can't afford to eat with you guys anymore, you know. I'd rather pay for your meal than have to leave the tip anymore, you know. And it really is the attitude of our hearts when we go out and we interact with people. What are we doing? How are we representing God? And we should always represent them, not just financially with tips, but by the way we treat them, by the way we interact with them. We're demonstrating that we're children of the living God. So uh, there wasn't much justice for these people back then either. Those that didn't have a lot of money didn't have a lot of justice. Those that had the money, they just had to bribe someone or pay someone off, and, and they could afford you know, to you know, rig the 
legal system back then, it isn't much different today. It just takes a lot more money. But people have it. And those things happen. James goes from criticizing the treatment of laborers by the rich to addressing the brethren directly in the next two verses. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So as laborers of the Lord, we're to be patient to see the fruit God's going to bring to produce fruit in other lives. We need to be patient to see that. There are times when we're going to be, pay, uh, going to be taken advantage of. And when we're taken advantage of, we will see the Lord intervene on our behalf if we give him the opportunity to. Quite often, we're trying to look out for our own selves, and so we get involved, we get aggravated, we get frustrated when we're taken advantage of. And we lose our joy. If we lose our joy, first of all, we're not representing Christ very well. And second of all, we form bitterness that continues to dwell within us, and it festers, and it grows within us. And that happens to Christians. He's talking to the brethren, and he says, just be patient. You know, it, it, through the things that we go through, we can endure and be blessed and grow in our walk with the Lord and in our interaction with the world. Our reputation is staked on how we act during the times of trial. People can tell how we react or interact, and um, people know whether or not we're frustrated or hated. In those days, they didn't have irrigation methods. If they didn't have rain, they, their crops died. You know, and, and their crops suffered greatly due to that. We have great irrigation methods now, so a drought doesn't affect us like it did back in those days. A drought nowadays, it's a problem still, but we just get the water coming down from the Colorado River. We have aquifers that are able to produce water. We have technology that is able to pump the water into the land, even though it doesn't rain for 100 days. It's okay. We have enough water to provide for um, the fruit. See, back then, the farmer uh, it was completely reliant on God to provide the rain. And if the rain didn't come, it seemed like, oh no, you know, I, I'm in trouble. And they relied fully on God to take care of them and provide for them. Referring um, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies. We talked about this earlier. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
But then Jesus goes on to say that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Some people take that out of context and they think that the sun rising on the evil and the good is good and then the rain on the evil and the unjust is the bad, is the negative. And that's not how it is. Both are good. We need both. We need sun for photosynthesis to make things grow. We also need the rain to um, give the nutrients in the soil to you know, be able to help the crops grow. So the sun and the rain are both good and God provides them both so that the crops can grow. But he doesn't just provide the rain and the sun on the good people, and then on the evil people, he doesn't provide the... He provides it all to everyone. Because for the evil, he wants to show them that he's a good God. Do we treat evil people the same way? Do we love people that are mean to us and evil to us? Do we treat them with the same love and respect that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? Sometimes we even treat brothers and sisters in Christ badly, and we shouldn't. So this is a condemnation for us. At the same time, it's a conviction for our hearts so that we can do better. So we're not condemned because of this action. We're not going to hell because of being like this, but it doesn't represent Jesus Christ really well. And so we need to have an attitude that we're going to bless others, that we're going to be patient in the struggles that we go through, that we're going to love others and that we're going to demonstrate the love of Christ to anyone regardless of whether they're good or evil because the blessings come from God. And we are the recipients of his blessings even when we're not good. Now, I know all of us are good all the time, right? Oh. So, you know, that's... The thing, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I, first of all, I go, ah! And then I, I say, you know, who's coming out today? Who's going to be in public today? You know, is it, is it this guy or is it the Lord that's going to be seen in public? And I always want it to be the Lord, but sometimes it's Rick. And I don't want it to be Rick, you know? In verse 8, James tells us to be patient and establish our hearts. James says that the coming of the Lord is at hand, believing that the Lord will return at every time, any time. That's what he believed back then. So did Paul. So did all of the early church. They believed he can come back at any time. And it's even more true now, isn't it? That he can return at any time. So here's the thing. They believed it and it didn't happen. Really? Where are they? They're all with the Lord. Well, 
hopefully, they're all with the Lord now, and they've been with him for 2,000 years. You see, so the Lord, in a sense, did come. You know? But here for us, we know that he can return at any time and take us home. We're looking forward to that. We're counting on it. But if we don't get to that point, we're going to be with him anyway. Our last breath on earth is followed by our first breath in heaven. Even if we have to breathe, I don't know. But we're going to be there in heaven. So James is once again going to address how Christians are supposed to treat one another in verse 9. Where he says, do not grumble against one another, brethren. That's how you know he's talking to Christians. Because he says, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So Christians, no grumbling. Don't grumble. That's what he's saying. And in the Greek, it means don't grumble. Okay, just in case. In my experience, I haven't found the perfect church yet. I haven't found a church, even our church, we're not perfect. There is no perfect church out there. I haven't found it yet. But that doesn't give us an excuse to be imperfect. That doesn't give us an excuse to, well, I'm, we're not going to be perfect until Jesus Christ returns, and then he's going to complete the work that he started in us, and okay, but so we'll just keep going like we're No. We're supposed to strive for perfection. The term means completion. That's what we're supposed to strive for in our lives. Not that we are perfect in every way. I don't want to get legalistic about it. But what I'm talking about is living our lives in such a way that people can tell that we're different than the world, than those that are trusting in the world. We can't trust in the world anymore, can we? There's nothing, to, the world is falling apart. It's crazy. It's in, there are insane people out there. Now, they think that we're crazy. They think that we're the ones that are out of our minds. But I, I don't even have to watch the news anymore. I can tell you what's going to happen. Craziness. It's all going to be crazy. And now I'm kind of excited because everything I watch in the news, I compare to what the Bible tells me. And then I know the day that we're living in. I know the season that we're in because the Bible tells us everything that's going to take place. And here, I'm looking at it saying, this is taking place, right? Who's reading the Bible and deciding on these things? Is Putin there saying, oh, let's do this next? This looks... What are they doing? Yes, they're following it as if they were reading the Word of God and then they were carrying it out. But that shouldn't scare us. Don't be frightened by the things that you see in the news, the things going on in the world. The only way they get you to watch tomorrow is if they can frighten you today. What's going to happen next? You know, this is like the, the, the old soap operas that you used to have to watch, and they end it, and, you know, and, and then tomorrow, come back and find out what, you know, and, and 
you know, and then you have to watch again to find out what was going on. That's what the news is really doing, you know? And, and then you can watch for three hours and get five minutes of information. It just keeps repeating it over and over again, just in a different way, with a different voice, with a different personality. And there's no reason to get caught up in all of that. Because we know the truth, we know what's going to happen. We know the end of the story. So James reminds Christians that life isn't always going to be rosy either. Verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the per perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. See, the prophets were a perfect example. Jeremiah, man, that dude just had all kinds of persecution in his life thrown in dungeons, put in stocks, everything. He just had the worst happen. And, you know, he continued to do whatever the Lord told him to do. He was so faithful and obedient. And so we look at the prophets of old, and we see they were persecuted many till death, to the point where they were killed. Where was God through all of that? You know, it, well, God is right where he is today. And he allowed these things to happen. Job being the perfect example that James points out here. Job is there in his house, and, and the next thing you know, a servant comes in and says, oh my goodness, these raiders came in and they stole all your sheep and all your goats and everything, and they killed all your servants, and I'm the only one that made it out. And while he was telling them what, was, what happened, the next one came in and said, oh, you know, these raiders came in, three, ra three groups came in and they stole all your camels and they killed all of all of your servants, and I'm the only one that made it out. And then another one comes in and says, oh my goodness, a big wind came and knocked down your oldest son's house, and all your kids were in there celebrating, and they're all dead, and I'm the only one that made it out. Four times this happened. He lost everything, all his servants. Now we know that Job was rich because he had four servants that survived and then a bunch of them that died. And all these animals that he had and his whole family that died. And he had a wonderful, loving wife. <laughs> and she survived. And so Job was an example to us because through the trial that he went through, first of all, it says that he endured all these things. And what did Job say after that? He said, we bring nothing at birth and we take nothing with us at death. The Lord alone gives and takes. Praise the name of the Lord. And then in Job chapter 1, verse 22, it says, in spite of everything, Job did not sin or accuse God of doing wrong. Man. Do we go through trials and we think that God is unjust or doing us wrong or allowing us to go through something that we don't deserve, go read Job. It, it'll make your life a lot 
better looking. It'll give you a better attitude, you know. And in the end, we're told that Job was blessed with more than what he had at the beginning. He was blessed with more. The numbers were just incredible how much he ended up being blessed with in the end because of his faithfulness. And I believe that Job didn't just hold on to him and, and keep it all for himself. I'm sure Job was used by God to bless many others. How do we measure up? Do we endure and persevere during the trial and collapse under the weight of our own situation? Or do we trust him and do we trust that he's going to do the right thing? That he is going to end up blessing us in the end? Quite often, we're struggling through the whole thing, just waiting to get out. And when we get out of the trial, we come out with singed clothes and, and, and you know, burned hair and everything. And it's like, oh, I made it. I'm out. Oh, don't celebrate yet. It's coming back. Because we didn't learn what we were supposed to in the first place. And sometimes we end up going back through the same trial. Because we didn't learn what God wanted to teach us the first time through the trial. James refers to our speech again and warns us against swearing or taking oaths in verse 12. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. There isn't much for me to add to that. I mean, that pretty much spells it out. Don't be whiners or complainers or manipulators, don't do any of that. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And this goes back to building a reputation. What we say with our mouths builds a reputation. If we tell someone we're going to do something, we need to do it. Because that's how our reputation is built. I don't have to say, I swear by God that I'm going to be there. You know, I'll take an oath that I'm going to do this. We don't need to do that. All we have to say is, I'm going to do it, or I'm not going to do it. But either way, whatever we say, we need to stand by it. And that's how we build a reputation. Because the Lord, whatever he says, he's going to stand by it. And so we want people to understand that we're not taking oaths. We're not, I don't need to, you know, take some oath with you to make these things happen. Now, there are times that we see in the Bible that there were oaths made and stuff like that taken. Like when God made an oath with Abraham and he made a promise with him. And he did it himself. He didn't make it with him. He did it and said, this is what I promise. And he did it based on his own reputation. And that's what we need to be able to do. On our own reputation, just say, this is what I said I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it. And stick by that. Our yes is yes, and our no is no. People don't trust us by what we say, though. They trust us by what we do that confirms what we say. As we close, we now know what not to do, according to James. Uh, we don't store up treasures on earth that will go to waste. We don't shortchange those who have fulfilled their commitment to you. We don't forget that the Lord is returning. And we 
don't put ourselves in a hurry that we're patient to see what God is going to do. We don't grumble about one another, and we don't take oaths to swear to God. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. No problem, right? This is all easy. No, it's not. It's not easy. I would be lying to you if I said that all of this is easy and all you have to do is follow these things and life will be perfect. No, that's not true. And I can guarantee you, just like James, life will not be perfect until we leave this earth and we enter into perfection. But the point being is that can we do these things? Yes, through the Holy Spirit. That's why God sent us the Holy Spirit, so that we are able to do what he asked us to do. It's not in our own strength. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we're able to accomplish everything that he wants us to accomplish when we stay focused on what his plan is. And we allow his Holy Spirit to work through us. And we don't impede the work of the Holy Spirit, but we're obedient to the Holy Spirit. Amen?